play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. Cairo, Seattle. Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, we've got a full house. No, no, I did not interview Stephanie, DJ, Danny, and Michelle Tanner, but there will be three whole guests on the show today. I interviewed all three hosts from one of my very favorite podcasts, Unorthodox, the world's leading Jewish podcast. Stephanie Butnick, Leah Leibowitz, and Mark Oppenheimer are all editors of varying degrees at Tablet Magazine. They have written books and articles for major publications. They have taught at prestigious universities, spoken all around the country, and their individual accomplishments would take way too long for me to include in this intro. But these are some of the smartest, funniest people in media today. They have amazing chemistry. They're obviously great friends. But part of what makes the podcast work is how different they are. Liel is a politically conservative Israeli. Mark is a liberal New Englander with five children. And Stephanie is the token millennial with a cat named Cat Stevens. So were you all put together like a boy band? Was there like some like, you know, old dude with gold chains and a big a belly? a se- 72-year-old Jewish banker. Uh-huh. He was like, you know, we control this industry. So let's uh, let's see what we can do. You've He's like, of- we need the cute one. And then we need the sassy one. <laughs> You've heard of K-pop, but this is more like J-pop. Yeah. I looked around the room at Tablet and I said, who would it be fun to do a podcast with? You know, you want, you want difference, right? I mean, I think the problem with a lot of podcasts is people getting on and agreeing with each other. They're like, dude, do you know what's awesome is Air Supply. Yeah, Air Supply is awesome. Which is your favorite album? Greatest Hits. Totally the greatest hits. Why would you have anything else? And they just agree with each other a lot and a lot. I remember thinking that Liel and Stephanie and I represent three fairly distinct points of view. I'm here as like the resident lady um, to offer my lady opinions. So Um, it's just all tampons all all the the, time. Yes, yes. Um, What is the most Jewish tampon? Oh my God, we have not gotten to that Among things our listeners have never discussed. an episode about this right now, please. We recorded this interview back in September when I flew to New York City to shoot a couple cooking videos with friend of the show, Isaac Mizrahi. If you want to watch those videos, just Google Isaac Mizrahi and Rachel Bell. That's what I did. It will come up. And lucky me, the stars aligned and Stephanie, Liel, and Mark were all free to record an episode while I was in the city. So every time I fly into New York, which doesn't that sound cool, like I'm doing it every two months, whenever I'm in New York, like these are the things that I do, uh, but I usually do take a red eye. And when I get there early in the morning, the first place that I like to visit is Russ and Daughters. It's my favorite place to get a bagel with cream cheese and lox. They have caviar cream cheese. You can easily spend $22 on a bagel with lox there. Uh, But I want to talk about the history of the bagel. So we're going to turn to food writer and cookbook author Leah Koenig. And we're going to end 2019 by revisiting Bagelgate. Back in March, Twitter went ballistic after a guy innocently posted a photo of a box of bagels sliced in the St. Louis style. And then by the end of the day, every news outlet in the country has covered this. So, Just in case you missed it, we will fill you in on what we're talking about. I chat with a couple of St. Louis food writers about the now notorious St. Louis bread sliced bagel. But first, my very chatty, very interrupty, very fun interview with the hosts of Unorthodox, Mark, Stephanie, and Liel. 
I grew up Jewish. I had a bat mitzvah. You're but still Jewish, baby. I'm still <laughs> Jewish. Still, I know. You can still. check out, but you can never leave. <laughs> the Hotel California That's right. Judaism. That's right. But I think you probably get a lot of letters like this uh, of people who say that you are their Jewish community. As an adult, I don't really have a Jewish community. Also, and Seattle, so, it's tough. Right? It is tough. The West Coast is tough. I don't everyone go to lives, Temple. Every, but everyone lives far from everyone, and they have to get in their mountain biking time and What's their wellness guys? time. Yeah. Plus, and, you guys are so happy. Like, why yeah. would you search out a Jewish community? Like, everything is good. We have like, our Subarus. Like, come on. Yes. No, Seattle has you an amazing Sephardic kombucha. Jewish community. There's yes, like very rich. There are rich Jewish communities there. Let's you, just you be nice. Mean, you don't mean money-wise. That's I just want I to be clear. Oh, my God, no. I'm going to save you from a lot of angry mail and say, you meant robust. In a mansion, a mansion made of matzah. Yeah. Money I, coming out of their eyeballs. <laughs> Mercer Island, just rich Jews. Yeah, you've been to our hood. You know about it. I have. Um, so when I listen, I go, oh, that's a Jewish thing. That's not just a my family thing. Like the interrupting. You talked about how interrupting is a Jewish thing. I had no idea. I just thought that I was rude and annoying. We all are rude and annoying. So can you talk about some of these things that have been debated on the show and mostly on your Facebook page, like Jews don't use a top sheet, things like that. Well, it's funny because we've reached the point now where people are just like saying things their family did and they're like, is this Jewish? <laughs> or are my parents just weird? We took we out the garbage. This approves of me. Is that Jewish? Like, we yes, played part- that is Jewish. We played Parcheesi, not Monopoly. Is Parcheesi Jewier than Monopoly? I'm a doctor, not a lawyer. <laughs> but so the, the big debates have raged. Um, our newest one actually is do Jews back into parking spaces or do they go like frontwards in? I don't drive a car here, so I don't even know how to talk about cars. But like this idea that Jews back into parking spaces because like – you never know when you're going to have to peel out. And a lot of people are like, it's actually. It's the Holocaust. You see, you always just need to have your face forward ready to go. And someone's like, you know, if Holocaust. you see Nazis, you just have to press. <laughs> no time to back out. No time to And people back. are like, you know, I was in the army and like, they teach you that's how to park. That's, that's the safest true. way to park. And someone's I was like, and they did. I Wait. worked at the ADL. That's what their safety <laughs> training says. One person said, I took the Anti-Defamation League training and they tell you, you got to be. And I'm thinking, is that what they do? They terrify people to thinking that they, <laughs> but when so, you're at the Eastfield <laughs> Mall in West Springfield, you better back in. But because what if the Nazis thing, come? The top sheet thing. By the way, we just talk over each other the entire time. So hopefully you will get to ask overlap. us what our last meals Stereotypes will be. are real, my friends. I know. I know. We're all like counting our money here. Um, <laughs> In Mercer else? Island. Yes. 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 <laughs> A real rich community we have. Um, but the top sheet, non-top sheet thing was is really interesting. And basically the argument against the top sheet is like it's a very European thing to do to not. In Europe, Europe there's just no top sheets. And so like maybe Jews Losers. came from Europe more recently. I don't know. Like something big happened there and we all had to come here. Um, so maybe that's why. There's no top sheets. And then there are people who are like, what do you mean I grew up with like the fluffiest top sheets around? And so that debate really raged. And yet there was really only one true debate. What was it, Mark? I think it would have been aluminum foil versus saran wrap. A hundred percent. Which one's the Jewy one? First of all, this is all about leftovers, for a which, long which time. is a, which is a very Jewish thing, because we kind of are leftovers. <laughs> yeah. Ourselves. Uh, and and then second of all, let us be very clear: no Jew uses Tupperware. Tupperware is like the most gentilic thing. Like there are, there's no reason. You make your casseroles. I am the lone Jew who uses Tupperware. Do you put your Jello mold in it? I do. Your cookie salad. Jiggle when you put it in the Tupperware. Your bacon and lime Jello casserole mold. She's not only is Tupperware just like 
a waste because you have to wash it and stuff. But like the pleasure of opening your fridge door and seeing just like <laughs> seventeen clumps <laughs> of silver, be like, "What's in there?" So it's like a prize. It's a game time. show every right? time. Like, I'll is. take this. Oh, it's fish from so three days ago. It, it does get into some of like the more Jewish law or halacha, which is like if you want to like bake something in your oven, you can like cover it in tin foil. So like there are strictures that say like if you want to protect something that, that is that kosher, it doesn't touch something yes, that might like not be kosher. Like if milk and meat, like all this stuff, every like. Tinfoil is more protective. In, it's funny because like okay. some people are like, no, no, I'm a saran wrap family. I think saran wrap is – I would say tinfoil is more Jewish. I think that's, that's where I come down. I grew up with tinfoil. Like, you know what's best? Like a, like a slice of pizza when you see that like like, oh, you, you, and, and then it's oh, like yeah, in that silver that, triangle. That triangle. Yeah, and you're like, oh, yeah. It's going to be a good day today. Breakfast is going to be sweet. <laughs> but the thing that complicates this is the Ziploc baggie, which is like the ultimate – wasteful thing because yes. it's like a one-time use at least in aluminum foil you can clean it pretty quickly but I will say my grandmother loves a good Ziploc baggie do you, do you clean your you reuse no 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 I'm just saying that some people do like, I wash my Ziplocs out because you like, care them. about the environment that's yeah. why I use Tupperware right yeah exactly um, you know what's interesting is I, this is this is a tangent that has no Jewish angle whatsoever except that it's all Oppenheimer we'll find one um, I grew up with wax paper and I think it was a oh. 70s. They were worried about – there was a lot of like Naderite, you know, consumer protection. They were worried, I think, about the metal in the foil leaching, which I think they don't worry about anymore. But but back then maybe they, they did. And then saran wrap just seemed wasteful, plastic, blah, blah, blah. And, and I and a lot of the other little red diaper babies, little hippie children were served – it was often wrapped in wax paper. episodes ago, I talked about how the cinnamon raisin bagel is the goy's bagel, that no <laughs> self-respecting Jew would true. eat it. Because I'm true. I'm on Jew Island. Is this true? Yes, it is. Okay. Yes. I don't even know what that is. Yeah. Is that like a rainbow bagel? <laughs> <laughs> First of all, bagels themselves are no longer Jewish. We used to have them, but anything you could buy at the airport in Memphis is no longer we lost our, it. our people's It food. got culturally appropriate. So away you're, from you're us. welcome to in America. Do whatever you want. Like education. That's right. <laughs> the Gentiles are doing it now, Like too. being smart, <laughs> bagels <laughs> is something we no longer do well. Well, so bagels like, came over the Bialy. There's a town in Poland. It's called Bialystok. And so like that's where the Bialy was made. And so this is like a real Jewish And once a Jewish year, there's a festival thing. like a Woodstock. Exactly. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> um, but so basically, you know, Polish immigrants <laughs> brought bagels and bialis over and were making them in push carts on the Lower East Side. And so they are deeply, deeply Jewish. But it's sort of like the way like pizza is like, quote, Italian now in America. But like that actually isn't the pizza, like deep dish pizza. I don't know. I just think that it's sort of the way that these right. cultural products become so popular. They ultimately transcend the ethnic group. It's that like you go to Italy made, and you have yeah. pizza. Be like, I wish I was in New Haven. I had a moment yesterday where I was – at a bagel shop, and they it was black seed bagel, and they were making bagels in front of you, like putting them into a wood-fired oven, and it was an African-American dude making them, and I instantly flashed to it. Like, my grandpa was a Bialy baker in New York for decades, and I just thought, whoa, this is so interesting. Like, our food survived, and now it's here. Like, America, man. Everybody's making it. It's just, yeah. And I've met someone who told me they didn't know bagels were Jewish. It's really interesting, right? I mean, we are so many generations in at this point. We had a guest on our show who was talking recently about how this was somebody who teaches Hebrew school who was saying that when she holds up a picture of a challah, the kids are like, what's that? What's the fancy bread? And these are Jewish kids at Hebrew school. And <laughs> the only debate to have is whether it's challah or whether yeah. you keep the chet or Oh, yeah. Or well, go, that's something, challah. too. I don't know if you listened to my hummus episode. <laughs> Yes. Of that, where now I've decided there are two things. There is hummus that you yeah. get at Trader Joe's, and then there's hummus that and you get hummus, that actually tastes good. Which and you I guess, get when you sit in the Ashdod in Israel with uh, two people named Shlomi. No, I said challah on the show, and people wrote in being like, you hosted Jewish podcast, say challah. And now I say challah. 
it's it's a guttural huh. It's a hard sound to make, no, but now I make it. Can I just tell you? I'm really sensitive to this. I'm from the huh part of the of the world. Here I'll be like Israel. Israel. With the who's leave, I, I say hummus and challah. Because it's America. Like, because, right, you're not being, oh, may I have it? America, speak Jewish. Beckett. Like, no, just speak like a normal <laughs> freaking tortilla. American. Por favor. Just come on, man. I, I used to think that was super pretentious. Like, I remember a time in my life before I was employed by the Jewish media conspiracy where. It pays very well. Where, so well. All rich. Money just coming <laughs> out of my community. pockets. Rose Island, baby. That when I heard friends who were deeper into the, the Jew thing say like, you know, oh, you know, what are you doing for the Chagim? You know, will you have some challah and some hummus? I'd be like, oh, shut the <laughs> up. You're from, you know, you're from Peoria. Like, what are you talking about? And you need yeah, and I do, I do, I have this memory of this woman who always called it cilantro. Oh, and yeah. I was like, like in my mind, like I, my kids know that's the joke. If they're like, right. once in a while, I'd be like, do you want some cilantro? Yeah. Which is, you bought which the is, cilantro at the stop and shop? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> which is just hamming it up in this pseudo-ethnic way. Hamming it up. Hamming it up. My mother-in-law, wonderful woman, gifted in many, many ways, probably the best uh, elementary school teacher ever, certainly the best mother-in-law. She can't do the ch. It's a, it's a Jewish speech impediment. Mm. And there are people who can't, and we should be sensitive to that. Like, By some the way, people are there try. speech therapists that like focus on In that? Israel? I'm sure there are. I'm like, sure. Do, do, repeat after me. <laughs> I'm sure. I had a Cuban-American roommate who couldn't roll his R's. Mm-hmm. And he was like, the wow. old, which in English, which in English don't matter none, but, right. if, but in Cuban, oh, that's so in Spanish, <laughs> in Spanish, you better be able to roll some R's. Yeah. Okay, let's rewind back through the challah and the hummus. All the way back to the bagels. First of all, bagels themselves are no longer Jewish. We used to have them, but anything you could buy at the airport in Memphis is no longer we lost our, it. our people's it food. It got culturally appropriated so away you're, from you're us. So you're welcome to in America. Do whatever you want. Some may argue that this is the beauty of America. It's how Korean tacos were born and General Tso's chicken and stuffed crust pizza Food is constantly evolving. Take the Rainbow Bagel, for example, invented by the bagel store in Brooklyn. They're these big, colorful bagels that look like swirls of neon-colored Play-Doh smeared with funfetti cream cheese. And earlier this year, bagel lovers across the country were ruffled, to put it lightly, when a guy named Alec Krautman, a program analyst at NOAA, tweeted a photo of two boxes of Panera bagels. But instead of the bagels being sliced in half horizontally like they normally are, each bagel was vertically cut into nine or ten slices. The caption on the tweet said, Today I introduced my coworkers to the St. Louis secret of ordering bagels bread sliced. It was a hit. Was it? (laughs) I think it's disrespectful. We'll get into that. This innocent tweet, sent by a regular dude who just thought he was being nice and bringing breakfast to his office mates, quickly went viral. It was picked up by practically every media source in the country, from the Washington Post to the Today Show to Food & Wine magazine. People on social media were confused, horrified, and very eager to mock this little slice of St. Louis cuisine. And the internet did what the internet does best. Horror quickly turned to humor. My favorite thing was this incredible picture that someone tweeted. It was of a peanut butter and jelly sandwich where the peanut butter and the jelly were on the outside of the bread. Uh, and the tweet said, today I introduced my coworkers to the St. Louis PBJ. <laughs> Hello there, Rachel. Hello there, George. Thanks for cutting me into all this fun. I'm ready to be mocked and ridiculed. <laughs> <laughs> Just flog me. I thought this was dead, so it's uh, fun that you've uh, brought it back up. George Mayhe is the dining editor at St. Louis Magazine. 
when the original tweeter, Alec Krautman, turned down my request for an interview, I called up George. I don't know the guy. I just know there was a lot of repercussions and, you know, people calling him names and this, that, and the other. But, you know, then again, this stuff all dies a quick death. So, you know, in 15 minutes it was over. But, boy, we sure had fun for that 15 minutes. <laughs> well, I'm bringing it back, people. baby. We're going to do another I five. Know. No, it's, 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 a, it's a 2019 story, so it's legit. The people responsible for the Bread Slice Bagel is St. Louis Bread Co., known by locals as Bread Co., and known to the rest of us in the rest of the country as Panera. For some reason, the chain goes by two different names. And if you buy a dozen bagels at one of their many cafes in St. Louis, you have the option of having them bread sliced. I think the bread sliced is way more popular in kind of like big group situations. That's Heather Risky, editor-in-chief of Feast Magazine in St. Louis, Missouri. So in St. Louis, you'll see them a ton like in the office. If someone brings in breakfast, it's usually bread co-bagels, and a lot of times they're sliced that way because it's just so much more shareable. Uh, I feel like growing up in St. Louis, if you went to a slumber party, that was probably going to be breakfast the next morning. So George is a St. Louis native, but he says he had never actually heard of the bread sliced bagel before Bagelgate hit. And just like the people on Twitter, he was very quick to criticize. But then he did some research, and he said it started to make some more sense. Part of the, the rationale is... These bagels from grocery stores and from places like Panera, they're big bagels. I mean, they're monster bagels. They kind of lend themselves more to that treatment than a regular New York-style water bagel would. It's a softer, breadier bagel. You slice them that way, and then, you know, you get these little mini chips for your kids that can tackle a smaller piece People dunk these things in cream cheese as opposed to smearing cream cheese on it. I've been at those little parties and office parties where there's a bunch of different cream cheeses, and I'd like to try them. And I thought, okay, I could see that. I could see doing a little dipping and dunking. You can buy a bag of mass-produced bagels at any supermarket. You can get a bagel sandwich at any McDonald's. But bagels have only been a household name in America for about the past 70 years. The best bagels, New York-style bagels, are boiled and then baked, which gives them that snappy crust and makes them nice and chewy inside. And a fresh bagel doesn't need to be, and many people say it shouldn't be, toasted. Ever. But I wanted to learn more about the history of the bagel. I mean, most of us have probably eaten hundreds, if not thousands, in our lifetime. So I called up Leah Koenig, food writer and author of six cookbooks, including The Jewish Cookbook and Modern Jewish Cooking. What do you know about the history of bagels? Yeah, so bagels are from Poland originally. They came here with Polish Jewish immigrants. And, you know, when you're talking about how they were eaten in Europe, um, they were not smeared with anything. They were not draped with locks. They were eaten sort of just like a daily bread. If you had fish with it, it would be herring. It would not be lox. That was a very much an American addition. They kind of got imbued with a sense of Jewishness because Jews were the people who brought them over here. And that's true of something like borscht. If you go to Ukraine, nobody's like, oh, yeah, you borscht, that Jewish food. They're like, oh, 
borscht, our national dish. Um, but the reason we think of it as a Jewish food is because, you know, Ukrainians brought it here and then it became part of Jewish deli cuisine. So I think bagels falls into that category where it was eaten by non-Jewish Polish folks as well. But when it came here, it became sort of imbued with that sense of, of Jewishness. There was a time in New York, you know, at the turn of the 20th century, where there were hundreds and hundreds of bagel makers. I mean, there were enough bagel makers that there was actually a union. So they were actually a fairly powerful entity. You know, at some point along the way, they caught the fascination of other people. And you had people like lenders starting to make them on machines instead of um, hand rolling them. And that was really when they were able to take off by being like a freezer section good. And that's, you know, sort of when they became more widely known across America. But I think it's something like the 1940s or 50s, the New York Times mentions a bagel and they have to describe it. It was not widely enough known that they could just say the word bagel and people knew what it was. Where did cream cheese and lox come from? How did that start to find its way onto a bagel? So it's really interesting. It's a very American. Um, and there are different theories of how it happened. Um, the one that I like the most, and I have no idea about the, the truth behind it, but it's a great story, is that in the 19 sort of 40s and 50s, eggs Benedict was a very popular dish. And of course, because there's pork in the dish, you can't actually eat that if you keep kosher and, and you're Jewish. So the idea is that Jews recreated Eggs Benedict by um, swapping out the bacon for smoked salmon and then swapping out the kind of hollandaise creamy sauce for, for cream cheese. And in fact, cream cheese itself is an American invention from upstate New York in like the turn of the century of the 20th century when a dairyman who was trying to actually recreate Neufchatel cheese, like the French cheese, added more butterfat and more cream by accident to his recipe and created this like very, very unctuous, fatty, delicious cheese that became modern day cream cheese. So, you know, it's one of those things where like Jewish food goes to a place and then it evolves in its new place. What is your opinion of the rainbow bagel, the St. Louis sliced bagel, even like the cinnamon raisin bagel, which a lot of Jewish people like myself, I should say myself, I'm not a big fan of the sweet bagels. What do you think yeah. about these iterations? So, okay, I am a Jew, but I'm also an American and I grew up on cinnamon raisin bagels. And to me, they are part of the pantheon because cinnamon raisin are such Jewish flavors, right? Like if you're talking about like a Jewish baked good, like having cinnamon and raisins in there is second nature. So to me, that works. But I do think you can go so far with something. Like I totally agree that foods are going to evolve and, and they should evolve. But I feel like the rainbow bagel, it's just got the wrong intention behind it, right? Like if your intention is that you want to take something old and make it relevant to your contemporary palate, that's awesome. But if you're going to just do it because it's going to be like Insta-worthy, it kind of becomes not that interesting to me anymore. Um, and the sliced bagel, honestly, I hadn't even heard of that. I, whatever. Like you can cut your bagel however you want to. <laughs> um, when, once, you once you have the bagel, you can do whatever you want with it. But yeah, for, for me, like the, the Funfetti cream cheese and the rainbow bagel thing is just, it's just gross. Do you have an opinion on bagels? Have you tried the St. Louis style bread slice bagel? I want to hear from you. Send me a note on Instagram. I'm at your last meal podcast. And while you're on Instagram, tap, tap, tapping around your phone, leave us a quick review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts, or just text a link of the podcast to a friend. We appreciate you helping to spread the word. 
And when we come back, three last meals, courtesy of Mark, Stephanie, and Liel. And Liel's last meal comes with this incredible story. He told this story on The Moth. It's actually one of the best stories I have ever heard on The Moth. Uh, It has to do with bank robberies and also his last meal. Stick around. If you're a fan of naturally gorgeous, off-the-beaten-path vacation spots with small-town charm, you're going to want to plan a visit to Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, where you can grab a scoop of homemade ice cream and stroll around the adorable European seaside village of Palsbo, or walk on the ferry in Seattle and get off in downtown Bainbridge Island. And May is the perfect month to visit Bremerton or Silverdale, where you can get out of the city and into the forest in just 15 minutes for a beautiful hike. Enjoy a farm-to-table meal at Bremerton's Restaurant Lola, a Black-owned business. I really need to make the trip out there for their Creole brunch. And in the morning, stop by Saboteur Bakery for croissants that are so flaky and buttery, you'll think you're in Paris. There's also a gorgeous golf course in the middle of the forest, and there are several naval museums in Bremerton. Go to visitkitsap.com slash yourlastmeal to learn more. That's K-I-T-S-A-P, or you can find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. listening to your last meal you might like watching my new tv show the nosh with rachel bell we just wrapped up season one so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at cascadepbs.org in episode one i convince an east coast skeptic that seattle now has fantastic bagels and in the season finale we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of seattle episodes are a quick bite just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh. Available anytime, anywhere at cascadepbs.org or find a link in the show notes. Welcome back to the show. It's called Your Last Meal. You already knew that. We have a lot of guests today, all three hosts of Unorthodox. And since he is the editor-at-large of Tablet Magazine, and he actually had to leave early to catch a train, we're going to let Mark Oppenheimer go first. It's going to be a fishamajig from Friendlies with a coffee fribble. Wait, I don't know any of these words except for Friendlies, which I am aware of. What's a frigamajig? Oh, oh, you're from the West Coast. I'm you from the sweet, West Coast. sweet, sweet, innocent babe. A frigamajig with a fretzel? No, you were too, you were too busy eating In and Out <laughs> Burgers. With a treble, you, know. <laughs> you were too busy eating In and Out Burgers. So you're and, eating a frisbee. And going to the taco truck. Going to the taco truck and Break surfing, down, surfing big waves. So the um, the fried haddock sandwich at Friendlies, which is it's just a perfect, it's perfect fry. It's perfect consistency, reprocessed fish, browned. And then it's put between um, very white bread toast with a perfect brown on it, mm. with a slice of yellow American cheese, and the bread is super buttered. And then it's with and with a lot of tartar sauce. What is it called again? A fishamajig. Oh, a fishamajig. There's okay. a website for this. Like there's there's people who know friendlies. If you're from Maine to New York to upstate New York, down into Pennsylvania somewhat, you know the fishamajig. And it's just <laughs> delicious. I mean, I'm a vegetarian. I wouldn't eat a fishamajig, but you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna fall off the wagon when I'm 120. You're so to, bad. And I mean, it's gonna be naughty. <laughs> And then it's going to come with a fribble, which they used to have two milkshakes at Friendly's. You could get a milkshake or get a fribble. And the fribble was like five more scoops of ice cream. It was the thickest milkshake. It wasn't a milkshake. It was a fribble. They have since, in their poor rebranding, and Friendly sadly is in decline. All milkshakes there now are fribble. But it was the old extra thick milkshake and, and certainly coffee. There's no other kind of milkshake. No. Fish and a fribble with their very sort of limp fries was uh, ambrosia. <laughs> that was happiness, you know? 
Hall and Oates was playing over the sound system. <laughs> have one, your children ever had this meal? Well, my children have never had meat um, because they're very fundamentalist vegetarians. We wouldn't Or not, fish. Uh, or fish. I don't know if they've had fribbles. They've gone to Friendly's for sure because grandma and grandpa. I mean, you know, where do you go with grandma and grandpa? But what? Friendly's. But I don't know that they've had the fribble. What is the significance of this meal for you? Oh, I'm from Springfield, Massachusetts, the birthplace of Friendlies. And so did you just grow up eating this all of the there time? There was a Friendlies on every street corner. Oh, my God. Like, that's what, like, that, that was our McDonald's. were paved with frivols? Yeah. I mean, there was one. You could get the fish would jig at the Friendlies on Belmont, on Sumner, at the Longmeadow Shops, downtown on Main Street. Well, I've never seen him so happy, by the like, way. Like, that was, that was what it was. And You're he's glowing. Back, he's back home now. <laughs> I mean, in the promised land. <laughs> it flows with milk and honey frivols. It, it, Ooh, that would be that's a good where flavor. Went. That's where you went before prom, after prom, before confirmation after confirmation question before the oscars after it's, it's where you lived are you sure you're jewish <laughs> you said be, you said white bread you said milkshake it should all be said, things. everything about this is kosher style if you were keeping kosher style there's no bacon there's no and just bring some lactates with you and you'll be fine right. mm-hmm. oh that by the way is fake news the whole jews are lactose intolerant you thing. are insane i literally we do fight not about this know a, a single person who does not reach for their pocket to take a lactate come meet every oppenheimer we're just we and live right. on ice They're cream like, tupperware and, over here yeah i can eat it too in old my tupperware, tupperware. <laughs> <laughs> old sally tupperware <laughs> here's the thing i think charles tupper who invented tupperware might have been a jew i'm gonna google this Earl Silas Tupper. Yes, Uh, Silas. Not a Jew. (laughs) All right, Stephanie Budnick, what is your last meal? Okay, so I don't know what Friendly's is, but I do know what Ben's Deli is. And it's this kosher deli, which is sort of besides the point. But um, there was one near where I lived on Long Island. And to me, like the ultimate comfort food meal, because if I'm going to die, like I'm going to be pretty stressed um, about it. And then, you know, I'm assuming that I I know that it's going to happen. So my meal would be, and I don't want to be like, such a stereotype to be like deli, but it's a very specific deli meal. It is a salami sandwich, those like really piled high, like kosher salami, mm. not like the thick Hebrew national, though I do love that. And not that like fancy Genoa, like non kosher stuff. That's the thing. Like I want like almost like bologna salami. Yes. Um, on like a piece of rye bologna. bread, salami, yes. And then, and then you, oh God, so good. And then I want a matzo ball soup, because to me that is like what will make me happy in any situation. Like that is what I go for. I'm like a I, I actually am triggered by food. Like to me that brings me comfort and home. And if I ever am like having a stressful day, the other thing I want is latkes. Like a real crispy deadly latka. Nothing too thick, nothing too thin. Like a nice a nice patty, a nice like puck size latka. And then, like, I would go to Dr. Brown's. I'm like, interrupting you, obviously. You should know. This is my that, meal. And I, I know, but you should know that there's, there's a, a big debate around this, this community. I think latkes are a sham. I think they're the worst holiday well, food This ever. is my fear no. about my last meal, that you're going to come in and I ruin know. it. You're going to be like, I literally have <laughs> one more bite. So like, and you're ordering this? But, I don't like latkes at restaurants. I've never had a good... Restaurant yeah. latke because I learned I did a little story and they mostly make them ahead of time and then refry them they're and they're like not patties. good. Yeah. But when they're made fresh in the moment, you have to eat them yes. as soon as they come out. They're so good. But look, like I'm not making a latke for my last meal. No. I want it made and served to me. And if it's not perfect, it's fine because it's like if, if it's hot, it's good. And then I want. <laughs> Do you want ah. sour cream and applesauce? No, no toppings. <gasps> I'm like a no, no condiment person. I okay. don't like mustard. I, I like ketchup on fries just because I feel like they need something. But like I believe that food should be good enough to stand alone without a condiment. So your Although- sandwich is condimentless as well. Oh, yes. Just it's salami just and bread. Okay. I, I, was, I went to a very nice wedding last weekend, and you know what they served as a condiment on top of the latke? Brisket. Ooh. Oh, I like that. I mean, That I'll was just, good. 
Um, but yeah, and so it would be like a Dr. Brown's. I don't know where I fall between. I'm more of like a black cherry, but I think it's like a diet black cherry soda. That's Not, the best. Just because it's too sweet otherwise. And then like a series of pickles. I don't feel very strongly about pickles, but like, I mean, I'm very strongly pro pickle, but I know there's a very intense debate over the dill pickle versus the sour, versus the full sour versus the half sour. Yeah. I want a full sour just for this purpose because like I wanted to cut the like just other grossness of the meat and once and again I, I will be there be like why are you having the wrong kind of pickle at your last <laughs> meal Mark Oppenheimer wants a fish of a jig from Friendly's with a coffee fribble if you don't know Friendly's is an east coast chain that's been around since 1935 and Stephanie Butnick wants a classic deli meal at Ben's Deli on Long Island kosher salami on rye matzo ball soup latkes pickles and a Dr. Brown's Diet Black Cherry Soda. Ben's has been around since the 1970s and has several locations in Long Island, New York City, and of course, Boca. <laughs> Once the Jews retire, gotta go down to Boca. They gotta go to Florida. All right, so you may have noticed there is one last meal missing. We will get to Liel's last meal after the break. And it is so worth the wait. I mean, you only have to wait like a minute anyway. The story behind Liel's last meal involves a famous Israeli bank robber and a classic Israeli comfort food. All right, Liel, let's hear your last meal. So, my father was the oldest son of this very wealthy industrialist family, sort of like the Johnson & Johnson of Israel. Uh, and in, you know, pure form, he did what wealthy sons of wealthy families do, which is nothing, devoted all of his time to his hobbies, which were the sort of like of, of, of the masculine, muscular sorts, like guns and drinking and motorcycles. And this was in Israel. This was in Israel in the 80s, which is a, a kind of a very wild place. And at some point, when he turned 35, I think, his father, my grandfather, summoned him over to have a talk. And he said, look, you know, you have to do something. You, you, you know, it doesn't have to be a job, but it has to be some sort of productive activity. And my father was, you know, he was born in 1953, which means that he sort of hit, you know, puberty around the kind of time of the 60s in Woodstock. And he really believed in this, this saying of like, oh, you know, follow your bliss, do what you love. And so he decided to do what he loved. And the thing that he loved most, as it turns out, was robbing banks. Um, he thought this would be a really good and sort of funny pastime. Uh, and it turned out he had this, like, God-given talent for it. He was, it was sort of like, you know, I like to say he was like, it's like the Elon Musk of the stick-up job because what he would do, he would um, rob a bank which would take him 45 seconds, which is what it takes me to decide to get off the couch and go get a snack from the fridge. And then he would hop on his motorcycle, which he parked right outside, right around the corner, up a ramp he had custom-built into this van he had rented. And then he would stop and he would ponder the sort of seminal question of bank robbing, which is where is the last place you'd ever look for a bank robber? And, and the answer, and, and any of your listeners who are contemplating this line of work may, may want to pay attention, is the bank. Uh, and so he took off his helmet and his jacket and tucked the gun into his pocket and walked very calmly around the corner into the bank, which was now a crime scene, right? And so this police officer would come up to him and be like, sir, you can't be here. You have to leave. This is now a crime scene. And my dad, which at this point is just this middle-aged-looking dude with a receding hairline, would say, oh, man, my wife would kill me if I don't make like a quick deposit. Can I please just really quick? 
And the police officer said, okay, well, you know, be, be quick about it. And my dad would take all the money he had robbed not three minutes earlier and deposit it back to the same bank. And this is the 80s. There were no computers in Israel at that point. So, like, it's virtually untraceable. It was genius. And so he did this for a really, really long time and got super cocky. He started doing, like, two banks a day, three banks a day, banks in different towns, like, like you know, Zickfeld Follies. Like, he's doing dance moves and routines and stuff. Uh, and eventually, you know, he, he gets arrested. And we go. And this is through your childhood. I was uh, 11 when he started his pursuits. I was 13 and a half when he was arrested. Uh, it was actually funny because the, the robber, who for a long time was nameless, um, was this big hero. And he was my hero because I was, you know, a dumb kid. And for me, like, the guy who, like, you know, screws with the police and never gets caught is, like, a cool guy, right? He was like a pop culture hero. And and then he's arrested, and it turns out he's not some cool pop culture hero. He's my, wow. you know, schlubby middle-aged dad. Um, and life changes dramatically for us because we go from living in, like, the nicest, toniest suburb, like, right by the beach with, like, all the privilege and, and you know, trappings of wealth to being cavity searched once a week while visiting dad in prison, which is a really different scene. And so everything is topsy-turvy. And the one thing, we're Jews. The one thing we turn for, to for comfort is? Food. It's food. And so herein lies the last meal. Um, it's schnitzel, which for those of our lovely gentilic and or non-Germanic listeners, uh, is just a bre- – it could be pork, but in my case, obviously, it was chicken that is lightly breaded and fried, um, mashed potatoes, mm. and a good, finely chopped Israeli salad. Explain the salad for people who don't the know. The salad is basically tomatoes, cucumbers, scallions or onions, uh, some peppers, some radishes, a lot of olive oil, a lot of lemon juice, salt, pepper, never lettuce or greens or anything like that, um, diced really fine, really kind of nice, sprightly looking, bright, colorful, delicious salad. I had this meal for lunch. And dinner every day for five years. Why? I don't know. It was the only constant in my life. I, I think I felt like everything else made no sense. Literally, uh, it was possible for life to be appended in, in a moment's notice. Like there was literally a knock on the door, right? And the police officer came and said, hey, you have some news that might um, you know, impact your life in, in some way. And if that's the case, there's really one thing you can control. And that's the one thing I could control. It, it was this meal that, that made it seem like there was some sort of through line to life. Life today looked nothing like life yesterday, with the exception that I'm still eating schnitzel. <laughs> that's the one thing about reality I can control. Did your mom make this meal twice a day, or where were you getting somebody to give you this constantly? We went to live with my grandmother. She made it a lot. And then at some point, I just learned how to make it, and, and I just started making it, and, and, and then at some point when, when things got really dark during high school and I didn't really have the time or the inclination to sit down for meals, I do the grossest thing ever, and I've never publicly spoken about it. Ooh, do you make a sandwich out of this? I put them all in the blender. <gasps> yep. And so you would s- drink a schnitzel mashed I just, potato I just, Israeli I salad? I put schnitzel mashed potato and Israeli salad in the blender. I blended them together. I put them in like a to-go cup because I was like roaming a lot. I didn't like being home because it was like very stressful. I just like I had my to-go cup with my sustenance. <laughs> and I just, literally like a sippy cup, right? What They're, does like, it taste like? Yeah. Oh, revolting. 
But then you just put some ketchup in it and shut even everything. A ketchup out. drizzle. No. Do you remember a you frizzle. said? I mean, I don't know if it was like a little hyperbole, but like every day for five years. Like, do you it's remember? Not hyperbole. It's accurate description. Do you remember the first meal you ate that wasn't that when you suddenly went? I can move on from this. I joined the the Scouts, which in Israel is a very different thing than it is yeah. here. It's basically like a paramilitary organization. And so we would go for, you know, three, four, five, not five, but three or four months to the woods to, like, scout. And so I don't think I would have had that every day there. Yeah. And so I wasn't prissy about it. But if it was home, it had to be that. And so now you make it for your family? I do. Mm-hmm. Like once a week. Oh, it's so good. Actually, last time Stephanie was over, I think that's exactly what I made. It's honestly such a comforting meal. Every culture has a fried chicken, right. and that yeah. is Israeli's. And you also, Israel's fried chicken. it's so great to just like unload aggressions because the, 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 the chicken has to be really thin. So you have to put them on a cutting board and then just go to town. Then be like, my life, bang, 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 bang. <laughs> like, you know, you really sort of unleash all the fury to make this chicken perfect. And that was Stephanie Budnick, Mark Oppenheimer, and Liel Leibovitz's Last Meal. So you put out a book earlier this year, Tablet put out a book called The 100 Most Jewish Foods, A Highly Debatable List. Of course, the book had traditional things you would expect in it. There was matzo ball soup and there was brisket. But then there were things like bacon and sweet and low and leftovers and the used tea bag. The funny thing is, so we had all this stuff and we were doing this photo shoot and we, the idea was to get all hundred foods on one table together, which was like a, a Jewish Herculean task. And we had, you know, orders coming in from the deli with the pastrami sandwich. We had, you know, these amazing food stylists and, and prep people built, like cooking a brisket. And we had all of our staff like working on this. And we get there and we're looking at the Google Docs list, which is printed out on the wall. And someone's like, I'm just going to count to make sure we have everything. So we count, and because like one actually isn't one on Google Docs, we only had 99 foods. Ugh. And so we are like, what we we can't, we have to do this today. There's no way all this food is, is lasting till tomorrow. There's like, you know, someone like literally like using a paintbrush on the black and white cookies to like get, get them really nice and shiny. Like we had to do this. And so we're looking around and someone, I think it was the food stylist, was like, you know, my grandma would always use the same tea bag over and over again. Like, what about that? And I ran to grab my teacup and I had tea bag that I've been using all day and just refilling the hot water on and was like sort of like limp and, and, and sort of colorless and I was like well I have one right here so my actual tea bag is in the book that ended up coming out the from tea this. bag that you received for your bat mitzvah yes yes my 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 birthright the tea, the tea bag. bag that was included in your dowry when yes, you got married exactly I've been carrying it with me my whole life um but that is the entry that people connect with the most you know everyone obviously you know Hala's on that list you know everyone knows those foods people are like my family I think had one tea bag our entire lives. <laughs> this is so deeply ingrained in our psyches. Maybe it's because of so many people growing up in the Depression. This is obviously transcends just Jewish culture, but that was the one that spoke to people so much. And we were like, that was literally not on the list. <laughs> that was a total fluke. And there was something so magical and perfect about that. Listen to the Unorthodox podcast. Every episode, they interview a Jew of the week and a Gentile of the week, and you'll learn lots of things and you'll probably laugh. And if you're looking for a last minute Hanukkah gift, pick up their new book, The Newish Jewish Encyclopedia. From Abraham to Zabar's and everything in between. Thanks to their producer, Josh Cross, for recording this episode in their studio in New York. Thanks to my bagel people, Heather Risky, editor-in-chief of Feast Magazine in St. Louis, Missouri, George Mayhee, dining editor at St. Louis Magazine, and food writer and cookbook author, Leah Koenig. This episode was produced by Laura Scott and me, recorded by Aaron Mason, and theme music by Prom Queen. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal. 
show of the year i've been trying to think of what i want to eat for my last thing in 2019 mm. and what i want my first thing to be in 2020 uh-huh. haven't, I, I don't know yet i haven't gotten there yet hot pizza and then cold pizza Ooh, i kind of like that and that was stephanie butnick mark oppenheimer and liel louis <laughs> louis louis blitz blah 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 blah